Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. As we go through these various psalms together, I want you to remember we are talking about building a spiritual legacy. I like to think of it this way. If I had an opportunity to convince my grandchildren of certain principles, if I could teach them certain principles and know that they would believe them, and know that they would embrace those principles, what would I say to them? What would I want them to learn? And as I go through each of these psalms, and I'm certainly not going to preach through the whole book of psalms, but I've selected key ones that will help us to identify certain principles of building a spiritual legacy. I want to know when my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren raise each other, and as they embrace certain things in their lives, I want to know that there are certain truths from Scripture I would want them to embrace. Psalm 34 forms the backdrop for one of the most emotional experiences in the life of David you would ever want to see. The man has rebelled against God. He has taken control of his life away from God. He has failed to trust in the promises of God. God told him he would not die by the hand of Saul. He told him that he would not uh, lose the kingship, that he would become the king. And as the circumstances in David's life began to emerge... He began more and more to distrust those promises as he saw the anger of Saul and the jealousy and rage of Saul, as he saw the enemies, the friends of King Saul, becoming more and more hostile toward him. He began to question whether or not God knew what he was talking about. And I would say that in the next few days of David's life, he literally lost his spiritual compass. He may have even lost his mind. That's why I've entitled this message, I Feel Like I Am Losing My Mind. All of us get to the place where we question, where we're sitting in some sort of darkness, some sort of dark, abysmal tunnel, where the lights seem to go out. We don't know which direction we're heading in, and we have for all intents and purposes, lost our spiritual compass. David lost the faithfulness of his wife. He lost his best friend, Jonathan. His enemies were pursuing him. All, for all intents and purposes, the lights in his life had been extinguished. And now he finds himself with no alternative, at least he thought there was no alternative, but to turn to the very enemies of God. When David killed Goliath, the great giant, he killed him with faith and a slingshot and a trust in the power of God. It was the high point of David's life. Psalm 34 forms the backdrop for the low point in David's life. 
He has now come to the place where he's running for his life. And when all else around him fails to comfort him, he goes to no less than the very camp of Goliath. He goes to the king of Gath. He goes right into the heart of enemy country and he seeks comfort there. In the enemies of God, he hopes to find comfort. But when he is unmasked, he begins to fear again. And the king recognizes that this is David, the same one who killed Goliath, sitting there in his own camp. David, realizing he had been unmasked, decides to do an almost incredible thing. He decides for fear of his own life. Now remember, God told him he would not die until he became the king of Israel. He was yet to be the king. So the promise of God was, David, you will not die by the hand of Saul, and you will become the king. Now he's afraid. And what does he do when he's unmasked? He pretends to be a madman. He starts frothing at the mouth. He rips his clothes. The spit is running down his beard. His eyeballs are back in his head. He is walking around talking crazy, acting foolish. The king sees David acting this way. He brings his bodyguards over and says, don't I have enough crazy people in my land that you need to bring me another one? Who is this man? What is this guy doing? We know he's David. Get him out of here. And David finds himself next, sitting in a cave all by himself, sucking his thumb. Now, when we read Psalm 34, and I, ho I hope you have it by now, when we read Psalm 34, we see in the superscription, it says of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. And then he makes this incredible statement. Something happened to David in that cave that I am praying will happen to you this morning. Especially those of you who cannot trust and will not trust in the promises of God. Some of you for whom the lights have gone out. I shared with you last week my own experience. Many of you have contacted me since then to relate similar experiences. You appreciated my own transparency when for no reason, unannounced it seemed, uh, as a trap, if you will, I found myself in that pit of despair, not knowing how to get out, except to do what David did. He says in verse 1, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 6. This poor man cried. You can point to yourself there. This poor man cried. That's what the word called means. This poor man lamented. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Listen to me this morning. 
The way in which David began to emerge from that prison house of doubt and faithlessness and pain was to praise God. The one thing you feel less like doing when God's promises seem to be so far off is the exact thing you need to do. You need to begin to praise and worship God in the context of your own suffering. Fervent prayer, fervent faith, crying out to God, extolling or blessing him under all conditions at all times. This is what David did. Now, by the way, when we jump ahead a little bit, as I did last week in 1 Samuel, to show you that the end product of David's black, dark, dismal, dank experience in that cave, the end product of this worship, this praise, this time of yielding to God, of turning away from holding your fist in God's face to opening your hands before God and saying, I will believe and trust in your promises no matter what. The end result of that was a blessing God gave him that he didn't expect. Because you see, in just a few moments after this happens, David looks out the window. There were no windows, but he looks out the window of the cave and he sees out in the distance a bunch of men coming toward him. 400 of them to be exact. The Bible describes them as the disenfranchised, the poor, the needy. Those 400 men became the mighty warriors of David, formed the core of the very army that would rise up and become the essence of his kingdom. It was only after David yielded in faith and prayer and praise that God opened up his heart to receive the blessing he had planned for him all along. But now I want you to notice something in verse 7. It says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Who is this angel? The word, by the way, is in the singular. But in Hebrew, oftentimes the singular is used to describe another word that's in the plural. For example, we might speak of the people of God. The word people is in the singular, but people represents human beings in the plural. Similar to that, this word in the Hebrew could mean angel or angels. It could mean a host of angels or a species of angels. This is supported, by the way, by the use of the phrase in camps around those who fear him. The angel or the angels of the Lord Encamp, that's a military word. It's, it's talking about setting up a perimeter. Putting up a perimeter around those who fear him. So there's a picture of a multitude of angels that encamp around those who fear him. Other views say that this word angel means something similar to what it did in Genesis 48, where Jacob is blessing his children before Joseph. And he says this, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. Or in Exodus 23, as Moses is leading the children out of the wilderness or into and out of the wilderness, he says, see, I am sending an angel 
ahead of you to guard you along the way, to bring you to the place I have prepared for you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the promised land. Well, now in those verses, the word angel seems to indicate one angel. Many scholars believe that that angel is none other than Christ himself, because, because the word angel literally means messenger or spokesman. It's not necessarily an angel as we know the angelic beings to be, but it's the angel or the messenger of the Lord. So many have concluded that that angel is Christ himself who sets up camp, who puts a perimeter around you. You know, sometimes that is exactly how it feels. It feels as though, as in Exodus 23, the Lord is somewhere out there in front of us. We want him back here with us. But it's almost as though many times in my life, and I think probably in yours, the Lord seems to be out here, and I seem to be back here. He seems to be urging me forward, and there are times when he gets so far away, or literally I get so far away, that I can't even see him out there anymore. And I wonder where he is. I even question at times whether he's there at all. And yet it is in that context that in Exodus it says, the angel of the Lord has gone before you to prepare a place for you. Now I know immediately we're going to start thinking about the place he's prepared for us in heaven. We know that God has prepared, Jesus told us in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. Speaking of the glorious place that God is preparing for us in, in heaven. But I have another suggestion for you. When the angel of the Lord went before the children of Israel, he didn't jump immediately into the promised land. The angel of the Lord took them step by step by step all the way through the aridness of that desert. I believe there are blessings waiting for us right here where God is today. The problem is we're back here. The blessing is out here. The Lord is here and we're over here. God is calling us to a blessing here, and we're standing back here. And then we complain, I can't see you, Lord. I can't see you. Why can't we see you? Because of faithlessness. Because of hopelessness. Sometimes because of despair itself. But notice the key expression in that, that Exodus passage. I want you to be in the place I have prepared for you. That's the glory of our faith. The place ultimately being prepared for us is glory in heaven while we wait in this struggle. But it's a great source of comfort to know that we are surrounded by protectors. Whether it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself, if that's what the word means, or whether it's an entourage of angels, which is also indicated for us in scripture. Powerful angels that have been given to us before the foundation of the world. I want to talk about that just for a moment. What if that word does mean the protectors, the angels? I believe there are angels. And I believe those angels have been given to us before the foundation of the world personally. I can't wait to meet mine. 
They're likely to say to me when I stand in heaven, Chuck, it was a pleasure to serve you, but we are sure glad to be off duty. You were a real pain in the neck. We sure had some tough battles to fight. Not only did we have the demons to ward off, but there were times when you acted like our enemy as well. But we knew better. We knew, Chuck, that you were not an enemy of God because we looked on your forehead. And on your forehead, there was a name inscribed. We knew to whom you belonged. We knew the great price that he paid. Although we never knew or understood the incredible joy of this salvation because it only belongs to man. We could only imagine. But Chuck, we watched. We watched as our great God, your Savior, hung there on that cross. We waited for the one we serve to nod his head. Our swords were drawn, Chuck. It wouldn't have taken much effort for us to slay his enemies. Just a second or two. After all, just a couple of us wiped out two cities in a heartbeat. We heard them mock, Chuck. He saved others. But he cannot save himself. If you are the Christ, come down from that cross. You call yourself the king of the Jews. We watched Chuck as they punched him and as they plucked out his beard and as they mocked him. We heard his screams, Chuck, of Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we looked out of the corner of our eyes for a response from his father. But instead, as it grew dark, even though we were in a set position, like linemen in a football game, ready to charge, instead we saw our great God, our father, turn his back on his only son, and he allowed him to die and to be butchered on that cruel tree. We had no other choice but to fall down and worship, but our sorrow, Chuck, quickly turned to joy. It quickly turned to joy as we watched him descend from that cross into the very pit of hell itself, and bear your sins there and release the prisoners who had been on a holding pattern for glory and open the floodgates of heaven to people like you. Our sorrow quickly turned to joy when we stood there in awed silence as the sun refused to shine, as the earth quaked, and as the veil in that now defunct temple was torn in two, bringing access to all who will trust in Christ, not through a mediator, but through the blood of the Lamb. We stood there in awed silence because we saw a better plan and the dwelling place being prepared. We stood in wonder as we received our new assignment. He told us, Chuck, 
Go and roll away that two-ton stone. Not in order to let him out, but to let you in and to see that that tomb is empty. That death itself, Chuck, could not hold him. That our Redeemer lives. But then, Chuck, the battle with you began. We were assigned to guard you, to bring you safely home. And even with all of its glory, that wonderful, majestic temple that Solomon built, that same temple where people from all over the world just travel to see it in its magnanimous beauty cannot compare to the beauty of another temple that because of that cross has been erected. The dwelling place of God now, Chuck, the dwelling place of God is in your body. Don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have of God, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body and in your soul, which belong to God. And oh, Chuck, what a great price he paid. All because he loved you with an everlasting love. We knew our assignment when you were still in your mother's womb. We guarded you from many accidents you knew nothing about. We warded off many diseases that could have killed you. Your death, Chuck, was not an accident. Your death was not untimely. Your death was at exactly the right moment because all the preparations have been made. All the decorations are in place. You are here because God planned for you to be here. You are here right on schedule. Your home, the staging area for your next assignment has been completed. What? Next assignment might you be referring to? And then I'll see as the angels drop to their knees, the same angels who have protected me will drop to their knees because someone else will enter the discussion. I'll hear them sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth is filled with your glory. I'll see them drop to their faces and cover their eyes and their faces with their wings. And then out of the midst of the throne will come another voice and one who will stand before me and tell me what my next assignment is. And he'll say something like this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. Now I will make you ruler over much. What does that mean? I don't have a clue. But I know in the vastness of this mighty creative universe of this genius we call our God, that being ruler over much is something more than plucking grapes, playing a harp, and having angels fan me. I can get that here. <laughs> there is something special for you have been faithful over little. Now I will make you ruler over much. 
Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack, what's the next word? Nothing. What is it? Nothing. What is it? Nothing. Interesting. To taste is to prove something through experience, isn't it? You know, when I finish preaching today, when I finish doing battle with the devil, I'm going to leave this church and I am going to go home and in just a little while, I am going to take a look at a plate of my wife's spaghetti and meatballs. And I am going to know that it smells good, it looks good, it has good color, and in all probability, it's going to satisfy every hunger that I have right now. But I am still going to be hungry until what? I eat it. I taste it. Then I will experience, through that experience, I will know what to expect the next time around. By tasting it, I gain the result of such tasting, and I will see that the spaghetti is good. I will know for a certainty that the next time around, I can expect that same smell, I can expect that same look, I can expect that same texture, and I can expect that I will be satisfied. After I look at it, then I am going to abuse my body by overstuffing it, and afterwards I'm going to have to loosen my belt so that I can breathe. I'm going to throw myself on the sofa like a satisfied infant, and for the next two hours, I will have to sleep it off. <laughs> Amen? And that confidence in the goodness of that meal will cause me to trust that the next time around, I can go through that same very enjoyable experience all over again. You see, what David says here is experience the blessings of God by tasting of his goodness. That is where we find refuge in the grace of God as we take delight in his protective care. Only those who taste and see can call on others to taste and see. You will never hear a blind man call on others to admire a rainbow he has never experienced. You will never hear a deaf man urging others to listen to music they have never heard. But having said all of this, it is intriguing that the word the psalmist uses is the word taste. To taste is just that. It is a mere taste of what is to come. Paul refers to these blessings as joy that is indescribable. As riches that are unsearchable. As thoughts that the mind cannot comprehend. 
He says, your eye has not seen, your ear has not heard, nor has it ever entered into your mind the things that God has prepared. But listen, Chuck, taste it. Taste it here by getting to be where God is standing. He is going before you and there are blessings today. There are tastes today that will give you a foretaste of glory divine. But if you're back here, if you're sitting in the cave feeling sorry for yourself, if you're back here questioning the sovereignty of God, if you're back here sucking your thumb, wondering why anybody could ever care about you and God is calling you here to experience the blessings that he called you to today so that you might taste and see that the Lord is good. Where are you standing today? These are unsearchable riches. To fear God is to love God. It is our own unbelief that impedes the full enjoyment of every blessing God wants to give us. How often do we miss blessings because we are consumed with unbelief? For the man or the woman who trusts in and fears God, there is nothing, nothing lacking in the development of true godly character. Nothing they need hasn't already been supplied. Nothing that is withheld, that is withheld nothing that will, will, will be withheld that will help you to fight the enemy of your soul. Nothing that will be held back to face even the ultimate enemy of death itself. If you love God, you fear God because to that man who loves God, all of the supplies that he needs for this day have been given. Among the, listen, among the saints in glory right now, there is not one of them who looks back and sees the earth and his experiences while on earth that contends God somehow or another made a mistake or reneged on any of his promises. You'll never find anybody in heaven complaining about the unfaithfulness of God. But now there's one more thing. If you look at verses 10 and 11, it says the lions may grow weak and hungry. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Interesting that that word lions, in some translations, is called young lions. It's the picture of a young lion with his mother. In other places, in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, in the Syriac version, in the Arabic version, in the Vulgate, men like Martin Luther translated that word lion, the rich. The rich. It's a picture of men who love their money more than they love God. Men who love this life more than they love God. Men who hate what is good and cling to what is evil. 
They do not see that their money is a blessing that comes from God. They love it and desire more of it, and they do not honor God with what they have. That is why in so many places the lion is compared to evil and to hateful men. Satan himself is called a hungry, roaring lion who roams about seeking whom he may devour. All of that is true. But in this context, there's another aspect of the lion that we need to learn and we need to teach our children. Lions know how to hunt. Mothers and fathers of lions teach them how to hunt. By first-hand experience, they teach them how to hunt. They learn to kill almost at will to satisfy their hunger. It doesn't matter what they kill. The fact is they kill because they learn to hunt. In a very real sense, we are to teach our kids to be hunters. They are to hunt for the hand of God. They are to learn how to spot his hand when it pops up. They are to learn how to see it amidst the trees and confusion of life. Where is the hand of God in this? They are to learn that even in the crucible of affliction and pain, you will find the hand of God and they need to hunt for it. It is not always obvious. It is often clouded by pain. They must learn to redeem the destruction of life that is lived in a broken and fallen world, a life that inevitably will touch them with heartache and grief and sorrow and tragedy. They must learn to hunt for the hand of God. Where is the hand of God in this cave? They must learn to hunt for the truth of God, that he is sovereign and nothing that happens to them is in first filtered through that sovereign hand. And not only is he sovereign, but he can be trusted. Poverty is something many experience. But listen, sanctified poverty is a good thing, for it drives us to trust. Pain is inevitable. But sanctified pain is a good thing, for it drives us to believe. Disappointment is going to come to your kids. But sanctified disappointment is a good thing because it drives us to believe in the promises of God. Sorrow will come. But sanctified sorrow is a good thing because it teaches us to fear God. Teach your lions to hunt. Teach your lions to see the hand of God. It begins with worship. It begins by looking back at how stupid we have been. How we could not believe the promises of God when the blessings were right there all along. They just passed us by. The food was there. The smell was there. The hunger was intense. But we never tasted and we walked away hungry. Then and only then 
did God open up the cave for David. Then and only then, 1 Samuel 22 tells us that David looked out of the hole in the cave and he saw out in the distance men coming to him. Not just men, warriors. Not just warriors, mighty warriors. The same men who would become his generals and his captains and his lieutenants. The same men who would form his royal bodyguard. The same men who would fight battle after battle after battle with him as he rises to the throne God promised him. But it began with David wiping the spittle off his beard, cleaning himself up, and believing in the promises God gave him. You see, that is what sanctified pain looks like. That is what the angels rejoice over. That is the war that's going on around you right now. That is the spiritual warfare that's taking place right now. It's here in the sanctuary. That warfare is being carried on right here in the sanctuary. There is a deafness in some who have not heard a word that's been spoken today. And the angels that protect you have been active. The war is being raged. The battles are intense. Because God wants to bless your socks off. And he's over here. He says, I am going to bless you with new blessings every day. Every day. Did he mean every day when he said every day? Did he say that the man who fears him will lack nothing? Or that the man who fears him will lack some things? That's why I made you repeat it three times. The man of God who loves him will lack nothing. You want to know why you'll lack nothing? Because you'll have him. And he's all that you need. But you'll have him when you're where he is. Not back here. Not back here. Up here. So where's the hand of God? Where's the hand of God in your sorrow this morning? Where's the hand of God in your pain? Where do you see it? Are you hunting? Are you hunting? Let's close in prayer. What a mighty God we serve, O oh Lord. You are a great and awesome Savior. Those angels will never know the salvation we enjoy. That's a salvation you created just for men. They sat in heaven perhaps in wonder and amazement. You said even to your enemies, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could send 12 legions of angels to deliver me from this moment? But for this moment I came and you willingly submitted yourself to death so that you might inscribe your name on our foreheads. You have protected us. I know, Lord, you've protected me. I have traveled, Lord, through some very, very dark caves. And you were there all along, calling me out, promising to bless if I would but trust. So, Lord, teach me to trust. Teach me, like David, to fear you. Not in some sort of cowardly fear, 
but to reverence you as a holy God. Help me to learn what your hand looks like so that I might spot it. I might spot it in my enemies. I might spot it in my own pain, physical, emotional, spiritual pain. Help me to see your hand. Help me to see your hand, Lord, when I stand. Help me to see it when I fall. Help me to see it when I'm running backwards or tripping. Help me to see it, Lord, when I arrive to where you want me to be, sanctifying and redeeming the pain. Now may the grace of God, the love of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the very presence, person, and power of his Holy Spirit abide with each of you now until Christ comes again and forevermore. Amen. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.